this evening's talk, <clears throat> in a certain sense, is uh, a two-part talk. The first part is an exploration primarily of some of the wholesome, beautiful states uh, or factors of mind, of heart, that are associated with the development and the fruit of concentration. The deeper states of concentration as well, jhana, and mindfulness, that chief mother of mindfulness that accompanies us through all of our practice. This evening's talk will also uh, take just a look at some of the unwholesome mental states. And I'll be offering another more extensive uh, talk very soon on the unwholesome or afflictive states of the mind uh, and how to work with them in our practice. As I mentioned uh, a couple of evenings ago, the Buddha's very precise teachings and analysis of these mind states or factors of mind are disclosed in the Abhidhamma Pitika, the Abhidhamma Basket. So we'll just uh, do a very brief review of what this Amidaba, Amidaba. <laughs> Abhidhamma basket is all about. The Abhidhamma is one of um, the three baskets, one of the three divisions of the Pali Canon. The first basket or the first collection is the Book of Discipline. It contains all of the conduct for the nuns and the monks and all of the regulations regarding uh, the governing of the Sangha, of the monastic community. The second collection or basket uh, brings together all of the discourses, all of the suttas, the teachings that the Buddha gave over his 45 years of teaching. And the third basket, the Abhidhamma Pitaka, this basket has quite a different character or quality than the other two. Whereas it's not a record of discourses or suttas and uh, discussions uh, occurring in real life settings, uh, but it's rather a very clear, uh, detailed, and quite refined uh, disclosure of mind, of mental processes that combine psychology, um, ethics, or virtue and philosophy from the Buddhist perspective. And combining uh, these, uh, these uh, uh, mind and mental processes in this way into quite a uh, unique and actually quite a remarkable synthesis. And it's experiential, meaning it's what we actually experience as our practice develops and blossoms. And I think it's important in that <clears throat> to really learn about this, in that it can be helpful and inspiring uh, 
at some point along the way of our practice to actually hear in in detail about some of the more refined experiential processes that take place in the practice. This can help to counter the fears and other aversive reactions, the made up and sometimes fanciful stories and analysis, the misperceptions and misunderstandings, and the attachments and the clinging that can come up in practice in relationship to what may be unusual or maybe at least unfamiliar experiences. The second part of this evening's uh, talk will be a story, uh, a story that I've found to be quite amazing and inspiring. There are 36 wholesome mental or beautiful mental factors, mental states associated with the development of concentration and ongoing as mindfulness and wisdom unfold and blossom. The first of these 36 wholesome, beautiful states of mind uh, and heart, the first five of these uh, factors are called the five jhana factors. Though they're actually the wholesome mental factors that are applied to and uh, applied to the initial and the potential ongoing development of concentration with some degree of concentration being nece- a necessary component of our practice of sila, samadhi, and panya, our practice of ethics or virtue, concentration, mindfulness, and wisdom. So these, fine, these five factors, or these five, as they're called, jhana factors, apply quite uh, pervasively, in a way, to our practice. So we'll look at these briefly. The first is called, and I'll give you the Pali terms uh, and then explain them in English. The first one is called vitaka. It's translated into English usually as the initial application the initial application of the mind, of the attention, to the object. And the characteristic of this this, uh, wholesome state of mind uh, is that it directs the mind into the object. Right directly into the object. Leading the mind into the object. The object, of course, is the cause uh, for the initial uh, arising of vitaka, of this application of mind, application of attention. As concentration deepens, it's the absorption of the mind into the object. And sometimes we have to apply the attention again and again and again. So this first beautiful state or wholesome state called vitaka. And it has the special task, we could say, of inhibiting the hindrance of sloth and torpor, 
inhibiting the hindrance of sleepiness and lethargy. So we have the wholesome intention to apply the attention into the object. The second state or wholesome quality of mind is in Pali, vichara. And that's uh, translated most often as the sustained application of the attention. The characteristic we could say of continued connection and sometimes what's, it's translated as pressure and sometimes translated as uh, my, my Burmese teacher, uh, one of my Burmese teacher calls it stroking the object uh, in the sense of examining it or being present and being mindful of it. It's continuing the attention on the object, sustaining the attention. There are various uh, similes or uh, metaphors that uh, uh, highlight the difference between vitaka, the uh, applied attention or initial application, and vichara, the sustained attention. So I'd like to share some of these with you. It's said that vitaka, vitaka, uh, the initial application, is like a bird spreading its wings out to fly. And vichara, the Sustained application is said uh, like a bird gliding through the air with outstretched wings. Vitaka, another metaphor, uh, like a bee diving towards a flower. And vichara, the sustained attention or application on the object, is like a bee buzzing above the flower. This sustained connection and application of attention to the object of attention uh, uh, serves to temporarily inhibit the hindrance of doubt. So very valuable, both of these. The third um, factor, or what are called jhana factors, is in Pali Piti. And there are lots of different translations of it. I'm choosing to use uh, joy and zest as the translation. And it can be, uh, it's quite enduring actually, uh, often, and uh, it can be described as delight or or pleasurable interest uh, in the object of attention. It refreshes the mind, it refreshes the body. Uh, And in its initial stages, it pervades both mind and body. It pervades both mind and body with kind of thrills, feelings of thrills, which are sometimes uh, described as rapture, Uh, although that word can be misleading and not be really clear about the actual experience. It's sometimes manifested as an elated uh, uh, kind of uh, mental feeling. There are considered to be five different types, we could say, of piti. Uh, And they're distinguished quite clearly. Uh, 
that arise as one is developing concentration and it's physical more when it's being developed and then it's more uh, just in the mind uh, as concentration is really um, manifesting. So I'd like to share these with you. They're interesting and you may recognize some of them. There's a what's called minor joy, which is, or zest. I like the word zest a lot for this. It's said that it's uh, able to raise the hairs on the body. So maybe somebody's experienced that. I don't know. <laughs> There's something called momentary zest or joy. It's like flashes of lightning in the mind. And certainly some of you have experienced that. Then there's something called a showering zest or showering joy. And it kind of breaks over the, the whole body again and again like, like waves uh, coming up on the seashore. And then there's something called uplifting zest or uplifting joy. It can make us feel as though we're levitating, as though, as the, as though the body is lifting up. The next one is called pervading zest or pervading joy. And this floods the whole mind and the body with a very refreshing kind of brightness, elated brightness, a feeling of that. And this last one is really uh, the PT as, as concentration is really deepening and maturing. So if any of these occurrences have happened but you've not uh, seen them clearly or if you've experienced them had no idea what was going on, maybe this is helpful. PT, uh, as it develops, uh, inhibits the hindrance of ill will, which of course makes sense if you think, consider what its manifestations are. The fourth uh, Factor, what's called jhana factor, uh, uh, is called sukha in Pali. And the usual translation of that is happiness. I sometimes put an adjective to say sweet happiness. It's a certain sweet happiness. And it's really a a pleasant, uh, very pleasant uh, sweetness, a joyful sweetness, but not that it's quieter and it's a mental feeling. It's kind of a sweet, blissful mental feeling that's actually that's born out of a kind of detachment uh, from all sensual pleasures. It's in the mind. So sometimes it's explained or described as a kind of unworldly or spiritual happiness. And it counters the hindrance of restlessness and worry. PT and Sukha uh, are, um, they're closely connected, but they're actually not the same. So a metaphorical way of uh, showing the differences. PT's uh, in the, in the uh, commentaries to to the teachings, to the suttas. PT is compared to the delight uh, a weary traveler would experience when coming across an oasis, a a desert traveler, when coming across an oasis. And sukha 
is compared to her or his pleasure after bathing and drinking in this oasis. So you get a taste of what that's like. The fifth uh, factor, <clears throat> concentration or jhana factor, is in Pali, ikagata, which is translated as one-pointedness. And it literally means a one-pointed state. It's included in all of these factors, in all of these uh, concentration or jhana factors. It's really the essence of concentration. A one-pointedness, which you may have noticed in your own experience, however long it's lasted, a few seconds or longer, uh, it inhibits, completely inhibits, sensual desire for anything. There's just this, whatever the, the focus of attention is. And it's a, a necessary uh, condition for any uh, meditative attainment. It functions, this one-pointedness functions as a very close connection and contemplation, contemplation with the object of attention. And of course, this one-pointedness needs the other uh, factors of concentration as part of it for it to function at all. It's kind of a cooperative or joint uh, endeavor that's going on with all of these factors, each of them contributing uh, to each other. So vitaka, the applying, applied attention, uh, vichara, the sustaining of the attention, uh, piti, the delight, uh, zest in the object, in, in relationship to the object, and sukha, experiencing that sweet happiness, mental happiness, which, and then ikagata being absolutely necessary in relationship to all of these. So those are the first uh, five of, of uh, 36 uh, wholesome or beautiful states that um, unfold, develop, and eventually mature in our practice. And I'd like to go over some of the others. I'm not going to give a big explanation. Some of them we've already talked about, but... Uh, The next one is what's called decision or resolve. That's a very wholesome factor of mind, of mind, of heart. Uh, it's it's the the resolve or the decision uh, to, in a sense, release the attention, release the mind, the heart into the object. It has this. Uh, experience in it of a conviction that this is to do. Uh, and it keeps us from kind of 
groping around, looking around, trying to find, not knowing what to do. It, it, it shows up in us as a kind of uh, heart-mind decisiveness in relationship to our practice, to the object of attention, for the object of attention. In the commentaries, it's described metaphorically as compared to a stone pillar owing to its unshakable resolve regarding the object. The next wholesome or beautiful quality is energy. And it's the state or the action in practice of one who is practicing with vigor, practicing with energy. It supports our practice, of course. Uh, It's a wholesome exertion of our energy into practice, our resolve and uh, connection to practice. And this quality, this wholesome or beautiful quality of mind, of heart, um, it supports all of the states that it's um, associated with that are coming up in our practice. It keeps the attention, the mind, the heart from collapsing, from sinking. And for many people, the cause of this beautiful quality, this quality of energy. The cause of it is a sense of some kind of urgency, some kind of spiritual urgency. Or some ground, some ground for arousing our energy. Something, there's something that's arousing the energy to practice. Anything, really, that uh, stirs one toward a vigorous practice involvement. So that's energy, or virya in Pali. The next quality is um, wholesome desire. And I think it's important to talk about wholesome desire because desire has a bad rap in Buddhism. gets a very bad rap. (laughs) There's wholesome desire. How'd you get to this retreat? You know, you had a wholesome desire. The Pali word is chanda. And under this wholesome umbrella, it means the desire to act, the desire to perform an action, in other words, the desire to practice to achieve a wholesome result. And it needs to really be distinguished from unwholesome desire, which is what has such a a well-deserved bad rap in Buddhism. Unwholesome desire stems from greed. Wholesome desire does not stem from greed. It comes out of a wholesome intention, a virtuous intention, virtuous desire to achieve a a worthy, wholesome, virtuous goal. And there's not greed in it. There's not self-centeredness in it. Awakening is actually not a self-centered 
manifestation. <laughs> we individually want to awaken, but the process as it affects our life, as you all know, in lots of different ways, it's filled with metta, compassion, and it affects everything and everybody that we are involved with, that we have connection with, in helpful, wholesome, and um, appropriate ways. Wholesome desire in the in the um, commentaries is just spoken of as the stretching forth of the mind's hand toward the object. So the hand is open. It's not grabbing or grasping. It's open. So an interesting metaphor in this relationship to wholesome desire. If the hand's open, it's not just grabbing or clinging. It's not. It's open to receive and give at the same time. It's one way to explore that metaphor. So, uh, it's a big long list to get to 36. (laughs) So I'm just going to list some of these, or all of them actually, and maybe make a couple comments on some of them. Faith, we've already spoken about at least a little bit in our uh, one of our morning reflections. Mindfulness is another wholesome, beautiful quality or factor of the heart, of the mind. We've talked quite a bit about that. The next two kind of go together. They're classically, the, well, the Pali words are hiri otapa, they classically translate as moral shame and moral dread. And basically what it it means is uh, having a conscience. (laughs) Fear of wrongdoing. Fear of causing harm. Another uh, uh, beautiful, wholesome quality is non-greed. Another one, non-hatred. Sometimes they're described in the not-having way. Another is the neutrality of the heart, the neutrality of the mind. Equanimity, actually, which we will talk about more extensively later on in the retreat. Another is the tranquility of the heart and the mind, which we've talked about a little bit in our exploration of concentration. And then the Buddha makes a very interesting distinction, as he does as we go down some of this list. Tranquility of the mind and heart and tranquility of consciousness. That's an interesting distinction. And I'll just say a little bit about it. I did say something about consciousness uh, during one of the Dhamma talks, but didn't stress it. Consciousness, from the Buddha standpoint, is... um, consciousness at each of the six sense doors. So it's called eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, touch consciousness, and mind consciousness. It's a consciousness in relationship to each of these sense doors. 
so we could say tranquility of consciousness is tranquility of the consciousness of experience the presence the awareness of experience at each of the sense stars another uh, wholesome and beautiful quality is lightness of mind lightness of heart lightness of being I sometimes think what a beautiful quality (laughs) and the Buddha makes this same distinction lightness of consciousness so lightness of consciousness at each of the sense doors another quality in this uh, area of wholesomeness and beauty is malleability of mind and heart malleability of consciousness and then another quality it's very precise uh, wieldiness of mind and heart wieldiness of consciousness and it goes on proficiency of mind and heart proficiency of consciousness and I just say all of this comes out of the Buddha's own uh, practice his amazing wisdom and his incredible capacity to be so clear and then to be able to offer it as tools for our practice so it goes on honesty a kind of uprightness of heart of mind and it goes on and says honesty uprightness of consciousness so in relationship to very specifically each of the sense door consciousnesses and then it says as we all know metta which we've explored to some degree compassion a beautiful and wholesome state of heart of mind which we will talk about fairly extensively later on in the retreat Uh, appreciative joy equanimity as I mentioned we'll talk specifically about that non-delusion and then the Buddha uh, uh, in the the Abhidhamma basket uh, uh, talks about three more beautiful mental factors that are based in abstinence and that abstinence is a beautiful thing and there are three different kinds of abstinence or three different tastes we could say of abstinence that are brought forth there's a very natural abstinence it's the abstinence that all of us feel uh, have experienced many times uh, uh, naturally Um, uh, the abstinence from mental and physical uh, deeds that cause harm and again and again and again in our life we abstain from that and we sometimes don't but more often we do (laughs) Uh, whenever the opportunities and there are many arise uh, to engage in um, harmful uh, deeds 
and they arise in different for different reasons and at different times points along the life our life uh, due to various conditions maybe in relationship to our so our social position our age it's different at different ages our level of education maybe and certainly our our degree or depth of understanding of insight and so we quite naturally uh, abstain from harm and it evolves as we go through our life and as our practice deepens the second abstinence uh, uh, is called the ab- abstinence of undertaking the precepts and they're all sort of certainly related I mean they're not uh, very uh, uh, closed off boxes from each other so the abstinence of um, take, undertaking the precepts this commitment uh, to live one's life observing, observing the guidelines abstaining from killing from harmful speech stealing sexual misconduct and intoxicants the cloudy these substances that cloud our mind the third abstinence that uh, the Buddha speaks about the beautiful abstinence is the most beautiful actually Uh, it's called abstinence by eradication (laughs) and this really is what comes about through the fruits of engaging in our practice and the fruits that occur with deep purification of the heart the mind heart mind consciousness the this buddha dhamma path of awakening that we're engaged in what is eradicated is the disposition towards engaging in deeds that cause harm which is pretty amazing if you think about it it's cut it's eradicated which maybe each of us have some some of those eradicated but for it all to be eradicated is most profound for our heart our mind consciousness to not be disposed at all towards engaging in any deeds that cause any harm so that's the that's the uh, sort of culmination abstinence the first two are uh, common you know mundane ordinary in in a worldly sense uh, and this last one is what's called supramundane or uh, not common in a worldly sense but it comes about uh, from a purified a very spiritually purified nature that comes about through our practice these include and this is really right out of the um, the uh, guidelines um, that we that we recite together um, at the beginning of our Dhamma talk evenings these include what's called right speech a deliberate abstinence from wrong speech meaning not lying not using harsh speech or slanderous speech 
Oh. And included in this is frivolous talk, but we're, we're kind of protected from that here in the retreat setting since we're observing silence for the most part. The, it also includes what's called right action. Uh, a very deliberate abstinence um, from harmful bodily action. Uh, both to ourselves and in relationship to other uh, forms, other rupas, other bodies. And it also includes what's called right livelihood, which means uh, obviously a deliberate abstinence from wrong livelihood. And classically, there's a whole list uh, uh, in uh, not dealing with poisons, not not dealing in weapons, not dealing in intoxicants, uh, not dealing in animals for slaughter, uh, or people, people being used in unwholesome or harmful ways. Um, So these these beautiful abstinences, these wholesome, uh, beautiful abstinences are aspects of these qualities, these factors of mind that develop as concentration is uh, engaged, the development of concentration is engaged in and as it uh, develops and blossoms uh, and mindfulness uh, goes, grows and develops and wisdom uh, blossoms. And I think uh, these last mental factors, the ones that are based in abstinence, um, I think we could fairly say that all of these uh, beautiful uh, factors of heart, of mind, could be regarded as the hearts, the minds, uh, aversion, we could say. If there's such a thing as wholesome aversion, this is it. (laughs) Aversion to wrongdoing to causing harm. The last um, of these beautiful, wholesome factors of heart, of mind, is the wisdom faculty, the wisdom factor. The wholesome and the beautiful mental factor of insight, of understanding. The importance of beginning to clearly recognize at least some of these experiential states in relationship to your own practice as concentration and mindfulness begin to blossom is that with knowledge of what is occurring and why it's occurring we have the opportunity, we have the possibility to see, to recognize and know these beautiful and wholesome states without attachment, without identification, and without fear or other aversive reactions, or without the misunderstandings and the 
sometimes misperceptions that can come up in relationship to these beautiful and wholesome factors of heart, of mind. But rather to recognize them, know them, and be with them with what is classically called a dispassion. Without attachment, without identification actually is what that means. A dispassion which is what allows the continuing development of our practice to just keep unfolding. I think actually I'm not going to um, go into the unwholesome factors of mind this evening. I will very soon. But instead I'd like to uh, offer this story. Very soon being tomorrow evening. This is um, part of a chapter from a book uh, called And There Was Light by Jacques Lucieran. It was a great surprise to me to find myself blind and being blind was not as all at all as I imagined it. Nor was it as the people around me seemed to think. They told me that to be blind meant not to see. Yet how was I to believe them when I saw? Not all at once, I admit, not in the days immediately after the operation. For at that time I still wanted to use my eyes. I followed their usual path. I looked in the direction where I was in the habit, I looked in in the direction where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident. And there was anguish, a lack, something like a void which filled me with what grown-ups call despair. Finally, one day, and it was not long in coming, I realized that I was looking in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. I was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct, I was almost about to say a hand laid on me, made me change course. I began to look more closely, not at things, but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within. Instead of clinging to the movement of sight, instead of clinging to the movement of sight toward the world outside. Immediately, the substance of the universe drew together redefining and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me 
as within. But radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, it was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief and happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I found light and joy at the same moment. And I can say without hesitation that from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I have had them or lost them together. I saw light and went on seeing it, though I was blind. I said so, but for many years I think I did not say it very loud. Until I was nearly 14, I remember calling the experience which kept renewing itself inside me my secret and speaking of it only to my most intimate friends. I don't know whether they believed me, but they listened to me, for they were my friends. And what I told them had a greater value than being merely true. It had the value of being beautiful, an enchantment almost like magic. The amazing thing was that it was not magic for me at all, but reality. I could no more have denied it than people with eyes can deny that they see. I was not light myself, I knew that, but I bathed in it as an element which blindness had suddenly brought much closer. I could feel light rising, spreading, resting on objects, giving them form, then leaving them. Withdrawing or diminishing is what I mean, for the opposite of light was never present. Sighted people always talk about the night of blindness, and that seems to them quite natural. But there is no such night, for at every waking hour, and even in my dreams, I lived in a stream of light. Without my eyes, light was much more stable than it had been with them. As I remember it, there were no longer the same differences between things lighted brightly, less brightly, or not at all. I saw the whole world in light, existing through it and because of it. Still there were times when the light faded, almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If instead, of, uh, if instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock. If I said to myself that all these things were hostile and were about to strike or scratch, then without exception, I hid or wounded myself. The only easy way to move around the house, the garden, or the beach was by not thinking about it at all, or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles the way they say bats do. What the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect throwing everything into confusion, 
minute before, I knew just where everything in the room was. But if I got angry, things got angrier than I. They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, mixed themselves up, turned turtle, muttered like crazy men, and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew where to put a hand or foot. Everything hurt me. This mechanism worked so well that I became cautious. When I was playing with my small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be the first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly because as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once a black hole opened and I was helpless inside it. But when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was very young? I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I had only to look at the bright signal, which taught me how to live. All of us, whether blind or not, are terribly greedy. We want things only for ourselves. Even without realizing it, we want the universe to be like us and give us all the room in it. But a blind child learns very quickly that this cannot be. He has to learn it for every time he forgets that he's not alone in the world. He strikes against an object, hurts himself, and is called to order. But each time he remembers, he's rewarded for everything comes his way. So let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.